Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are covering Excalibur number 54, Curiouser and Curiouser, in which Kurt scratches an itch, baddies find their unlikely soulmates, and Brian punches a cat in the face. Excalibur number 54 was originally published in September 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, he's back, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Hmm, I, I wonder which way I ought to go. was Brilling and Excalibur did Gyre and Gimble in the Wave. That's right, we are heading down the rabbit hole this week for an Alice in Wonderland themed romp that also happens to feature some pretty solid character work. And of course, I love it because a bunch of the characters are thinking about Nightcrawler. But who am I? I am Dr. Anna Papard, in addition to being Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. I am a writer and teacher of things about sex and gender and pop culture, especially comics and superheroes. I am also a person who cannot recite the entire Jabberwocky poem from memory, but I can do the first stanza and I know for a fact it is the only poem that exists for which this is true and I'm not sure what that says about me a person with a PhD in literature who did pass a 20th century American poetry exam the mind is a mystery but moving on Mav if you would like to say a few words about yourself no I just want to hear you recite Jabberwocky no, yeah. I, I mean, like I was going, I was going to, I was, I was like, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I was about to like make a whole off with her head joke, which yeah, for my intro, which can't possibly be anywhere near as interesting as just like hearing you, you know, only like, the first stanza. tell me about, uh, uh, yeah, about tum tum trees or whatever. But like, because I, <laughs> I, I, I similarly like, you know, it's, it's a funny thing when you are, I like to say I'm a, I'm a cultural studies person, not necessarily a literature person, even though like technically I'm supposed to be an expert but like you know and every time he's like can you um can you recite no no i can't can you can i remember the, can i remember who the characters are in any of the great literature no do i remember what like hemingway's first name is usually 
<laughs> I mean, it's, it's like I'm really. It's like, like, why do I, why do I have to remember these things? No, that's not that's not what literature scholars actually do. Like, that's a those are parlor tricks. I can't do that. I I can say all of Canterbury Tales um, opening stanza in middle in Middle English, even though that's not my time period because that's how broken being a literary scholar is. But anyway, See, there you go, there you go. <laughs> not even the right century for me, but like I know one that I believe is sure. So the Dratha Marsh appears to the Rota. I can just do that. Like what we do is stupid. That's ultimately like our entire career path. Wow. Ridiculous. Anyway, um, that said, hi, I teach literature for a living <laughs> at like three different universities. And I host this and another podcast, uh, Vox Popcast about literature and culture. And um, I'm an expert on, you know, silliness. Um, and I just kind of, you know, I don't know. I, I, I really do like my job. <laughs> Well, I hope so. <laughs> you I'm gave done. up. You you get you gave up wrestling to do that job. No, I didn't give up. I there was there was a, there was a little bit of overlap. I didn't overlap, get, I, yeah. I, I gave up wrestling because I'm old. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> reason. And my, and my joints, my joints don't work correctly. <laughs> Aged out of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A very good reason, Andrew. If you would like to reintroduce our listeners to your dulcet tones. Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am an instructor at St. Jerome's University and project lead on the Claremont run. I am a lit major like Anna, um, but the only thing that I used to have memorized is all gone now because it's been replaced with children's books. So I, I can offer you Sandra Boynton's Happy Hippo, Angry Duck. If you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> but I will probably spare you that. <laughs> Well, we might be talking about children's literature a little bit today, given our guest and given the subject matter at hand. Our Mad Tea Party is joined this week by a maker of words and pictures with a fondness for monsters and mayhem, so he should fit right in here. The pod is ebullient to welcome Jason Our Lady. Welcome, Jason. Thank you for having me. I'll tell our listeners a little bit about you. Jason is a lifelong maker of stories. He wrote his first novel-length story in high school, a parody of Robin Hood that starred all of his friends and got passed around on the bus on the way to cross-country races. These days, Jason works in human resources. But like so many superheroes, he's got a dual identity. When he's not at his day job, Jason is a children's book author. He writes the Magic Pen Adventure Series, a humorous fantasy adventure series for middle grade readers. Each book stars a different middle schooler who gets hold of a magic pen that makes everything they draw become real, relevant to today's issue. Monster Problems, the first book in the series, was accepted to the 2020 Ohio Anna Library Association Book Festival and the 2020 Kentucky Book Festival. The prequel, Super Problems, was accepted to the Ohio Anna Festival, is rated Indie Reader Approved, and is a Maxi Awards finalist. He is currently working on a third book due out in August of this year. Now, Jason, I know you're a big Excalibur fan. I want to talk about that, but I also want to talk about comics more generally. As we usually do at the start of the podcast, hit us with your comics origin story when did you fall in love with funny books sure you know as early as i can remember there were always some comic books of some kind around in my life even pre-kindergarten i think my earliest ones were probably what a lot of kids had back in those days like the late 70s early 80s i had casper uh, my sister collected archie so i read her archies i had uncle scrooge smurfs richie rich uh, my parents collected asterix do you guys know about asterix yes. oh, yeah. big in europe so good i grew up with those they had a whole set of them 
and really enjoyed those. So there always were kind of comics in the house of some kind. And as far as superheroes and superhero comics specifically, you know, I remember watching the Super Friends cartoons with my sister. She's five years older than me, but uh, was a superhero fan of, you know, to some extent. We would watch uh, Super, uh, Super Friends and I would see Spider-Man on the Electric Company where he, if you guys remember, oh, he, didn't yeah. talk. Absolutely. <laughs> he didn't actually say anything, but, uh, you know, I kind of knew who he was. So I had this vague sense of who these characters were. And, you know, looking back, I can see that I was a kid really in search of entertainment that would ignite my imagination. I mean, as you guys heard, you know, I like to write. I've written a couple of books and I'm a creative person. And I think I was in search of stuff that, yeah, would just capture my imagination, ignite it, entertain me. Uh, even if I couldn't quite put my finger on it, you know, I was looking for it. And I think Superhero Comics kind of came along right at a really good time, you know, in my life for that. This led me to draw my own comic books and write my own stories growing up. Sometimes I would read stuff and I would uh, be like inspired to go write my own, either thinking I could do better, <laughs> maybe a little arrogantly, <laughs> or uh, just being like, I want to, I want to have more, you know, there's an, there's so much stuff out there to read, but I want to add on to it with my own stuff, you know? So I think that, you know, obviously inspired me, but, uh, I am an army brat. We spent a uh, part of our years, uh, as a family uh, living in Germany, actually, in the 1980s and also in the early 90s. My dad was stationed there. We knew a couple families uh, with older kids who had comics, uh, had superhero comics specifically. And so when we would stay the night at their house or when they would come stay with us or we'd go visit them, you know, I would read these comics and I would borrow them. And the one family in particular had Avengers, they had X-Men, they had New Mutants, you know, Captain America, and got us intrigued. And uh, I do mean <laughs> us, the whole family <laughs> got it got interested in including my mom and my sister and my dad and it really got jump-started uh when my aunt came to visit from the states and she brought me it randomly just brought a stack of comics and one of them was amazing spider-man number 280 with a very dense story by uh tom defalco and drawn by ron friends and it had so many characters in it and so many subplots going on i just couldn't help but get sucked in and so between all of that we started collecting as a family and really my dad and i together comic books and that's something that i've realized that i really took for granted for a long time and I've learned how unusual that is for a parent to be involved <laughs> with the comic collecting that the kids are doing. Usually there's, I've heard stories of indifference. I've heard stories of parents, you know, even kind of being against it, kind of putting it down. Why are you reading that stuff? That's just trash, you know? But my, no, my dad was into it and I think he and my mom read comics when they were kids. So I think it was a little bit of an excuse for them <laughs> to, uh, you know, the fact that I was getting into them that they could, uh, you know, jump in and uh, read them too. And yeah. I still have part of the collection to this day. I downsized it a few years ago because I got sick of carrying it from house to house. So I downsized yep. it to the ones I really want to keep. One of them is the Alan Davis Excalibur. I kept all of those because I love them so much. And we'll go into that a little later. But yeah, that's my secret origin <laughs> with comic books. Oh, I love that. What's your kind of Excalibur story? What do you remember about reading it the first time around? So Excalibur was very much a tonal shift, obviously, from the other X books. They were more serious, darker, more grim. Excalibur, you know, it's been talked about a lot how it was kind of its own bubble off to the side, having weirdness and goofy stuff and absurdity happening. And I was primed for that because I grew up seeing movies with my family, like Time Bandits <laughs> and Buckaroo oh, Bonsai. Yeah. Love and both Monty of those. Oh, yeah. Two of my favorites. Uh, Labyrinth is another one where mm. it just kind of prepared you for all this weirdness. And 
going into other dimensions and other worlds and experiencing strange things. So when Excalibur came along, I mean, I was all for it. We collected it from issue number one on. And in fact, right before we moved away from Germany, we got in the mail, I think from Mile High Comics, we got uh, Excalibur, The Sword is Drawn, like newly just come out. It was waiting for me at home after we came back from seeing for the first time The Princess Bride in the movie theater. Oh, perfect. So you want to oh talk my about, God. oh, I know, right? <laughs> Popular culture synergy, you know, in one day. I look back on that and like, there's just such great feelings and just joy, you know, from both of those in one day. But yeah, we started getting Excalibur from issue number one on. We stuck with it for a while up through like number 75. Then we kind of lost interest. Uh, We loved the Alan Davis drawn issues the most. And so really anything else was a little bit of a struggle (laughs) for us. Uh, You know, we can talk about that. I know you've talked about on this podcast how the the quality kind of went up and down a little bit, but I discovered your podcast podcast during the pandemic. I discovered podcasts in general during the pandemic. I needed something to do. I was stuck at home. And so I was, uh, you know, prowling around on the internet. What podcasts are there out there? I discovered the Justice League International podcast, which is another one I love, another series I loved back in the day. And I discovered your podcast. And, you know, I'm just so thankful for uh, your issue by issue analysis of this. It's been so interesting and so fun. And I wouldn't have imagined that I would actually be on your podcast. But, you know, I asked and here I am. So uh, that's my Excalibur uh, origin and how I uh, got into it. Well, I want to get to your first impressions of revisiting this issue and, of course, some of your thoughts about the fantasy context we have here. And we'll talk about Alice in Wonderland intertexts as well, which I'm sure we'll all have thoughts about. Um, But let's do our issue summary and then we'll go to first impressions and talk about the issue. It's got lots of fun stuff to chat about. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never abandon you to your own dark desires while we enjoy a tea party. But as always, let's start today's sojourn in Wonderland with a plot summary. Excalibur number 54 opens with hot times on a dark night at Braddock Manor. The star of this dark hot drama is Kurt Wagner, sweating profusely as he's attended to by a shadowy person wielding a very large pair of scissors. Kurt screams in pain, or pleasure, and then it's over. The lights go up, and whoopsie, it was just Kitty cutting off Kurt's cast. Nothing nefarious at all. Kitty tries to get Kurt to talk about Rachel, but he dodges her questions by doing some dramatic stretching and somersaults. He does reveal he received a letter from an old friend in Germany, however, and will be traveling there to attend to a personal matter. Kitty asks to go with him. Kurt says no. Meanwhile, in an underground cave, Captain Britain is fighting for his life against a group of enormous animals from rats and crabs and eagles to dodos. He unleashes his full power, but even that's not enough to free him from the claws and beaks of his assailants. But as they pounce, the impact pushes him through the floor into another chamber, filled with water. Brian dives, finds a giant plug, pulls it, and finds himself spat out the very red lips of a giant teapot into a giant cup of tea. Curious. A smiling daisy squirts him with some gas, and he begins to recall how he got there. Di Kamas had called Megan to help investigate the disappearance of 27 pensioners from an idyllic country village. Brian, Cerise, and Kylan came along, just cause. Megan's started to shift into a wolf to track the scent, then shifted into the form of a white rabbit and dove into a hole. Brian, Cerise, and Kylan followed her. In the present, Brian wakes up, fights with some vines, and spots Megan, dressed as Alice in Wonderland, skipping off to a tea party with the Mad Hatter, March Hare, and Dormouse. Brian breaks free and attacks the seeming perpetrators of the situation. Our old friends, the crazy gang, but Megan pleads with him to stop. She explains that in this land, subconscious desires become reality. The source of this state of affairs is the fusion of Technet's Joy Boy with the crazy gang's Red Queen. As Joy Boy turns people's dreams into nightmares and 
reality and the Red Queen only dreams in nightmares, her nightmares are cancelled out by Joy Boy, who creates a dream world instead. Makes perfect sense. Brian comes around and agrees to let the crazy gang continue living peacefully in their fantasy land. The villagers also agree to return home and keep the crazy gang's secret. Meanwhile, back at Braddock Manor, Alistair, Lockheed, and Kitty are examining Widget. Suddenly, Widget's ethereal body begins swirling with colour, and Lockheed cries out in alarm. Widget screams at Kitty to look out before disappearing in a flash. As Alistair and Kitty stare at the crater Widget left behind, Alistair wonders aloud, has Widget disintegrated or merely teleported somewhere else? Curiouser. So, uh, we got a lot going on in this issue. As per usual, when we get Davis on writing and art, he works a lot into these issues. So let's get to our first impressions and break it down, starting, as usual, with our honored guest. So Jason, I'm pretty sure you like this issue, but hit me with the high points. What stood out to you upon this latest experience rereading Excalibur number 54? Yeah, that's interesting because um, I hadn't reread it in a little while, maybe, maybe a few months <laughs> actually during the <laughs> pandemic i reread uh, all the alan davis excalibur just to kind of uh, give myself a little jolt of uh, of happiness and joy you know during Aww. some tough times but going back and reading this one and not reading it in sequence with the others it was interesting because for one thing you know some of the things i love about it really still stood out to me you know the the alice in wonderland setting and captain Britain uh, brian being on this uh, journey and we're following him as he literally goes down a rabbit hole and into a wonderland is trying to figure out what's going on all of that stuff I still like. Alan Davis drawing Alice in Wonderland imagery. I mean, come on. It doesn't get much better <laughs> than Alan Davis drawing that stuff. It's really cool. And I personally love Alice in Wonderland imagery. In fact, sitting here on the desk right next to me is a Mad Hatter mug that has a picture of the Mad Hatter's Tea Party on it based on the original sketches. And I got that in Bath, England uh, when I was there on a trip uh, a few years ago. So when you have an issue set in kind of an Alice in Wonderland kind of setting, you know, I am there. But as far as things I was struck by this time around, you know, one of them was not reading it in sequence of all the other ones it felt a little light to me like wow there wasn't a ton of story (laughs) you know in the issue it kind of just moved very quickly and maybe that was the goal and uh, this is coming on the heels of some pretty heavy stuff that happened you know leading up to issue number 50 so you know maybe that's okay but I was kind of struck by that like whoa it's over already huh you know so kind of reading it in isolation really got a sense of that but it really brought to mind for me you know obviously Alice in Wonderland of course but you think of any kind of story or movie book where the characters are crossing over into some other world and you know as i thought about that i thought about labyrinth that i mentioned earlier i thought about wizard of oz i thought about the chronicles of narnia and someone making a trip from our world into another world and the rules there are different you're confronted with all this absurdity all these strange characters things don't really make sense to you is exactly what's happened to brian in this uh, story you know and the question is when the hero goes on this journey into this strange world you know does it change them do they learn anything from the experience does it show them things about themselves, uh, which I imagine that we'll <laughs> talk about. But those are my uh, first impressions of the issue. Yeah, I'm interested in that question about whether we thought it felt sparse or dense, because I had the initial impression too that, you know, like this was a sparse issue. But then as I was doing the outline and kind of thinking about what actually happens here, I think I sort of turned around on it. So we can unpack that a little bit more. But um, first impressions from Andrew and Mav. How about you, Mav? How are you feeling about this issue? Um, Similar to your first impression. When we were planning it and it's like oh okay 54 here's what i remember from it like from my past it's the issue where kurt gets his cast off i remembered that and then i guess there's a, a wonderland adventure where nothing really happens other than just like explaining the joy boy thing like that's that's how i remembered it and then i went through and read it and yeah nothing really happens except 
there's a lot of nothing happening. Like, and I, and, and, and I mean that in a, like for a story where there's very little actual character progression, except that like there kind of is, you do see, like, I, I think there's an interesting dynamic change between Brian and Megan, which I think is going to matter. And we'll talk oh, about yeah. it when we get to that. But also I think that there is character development for Brian, which is odd because it's lessons that like, I feel like he's already learned, but like maybe not explicitly. So, okay, let's do this and like set a stake in the ground of who Alan Davis thinks Brian is now. This is the, this is the issue where that happens. And then there's also like, there's just a lot of heavy text for an issue with nothing happening. There's a lot of words in this that I forgotten were there and it just feels i don't know how to explain it other than like nothing happens but there's a lot of nothing happening and it feels slow even though it's a relatively quick read so it's a it, it's a, it's an odd you know paradox in that way um to read for me and uh, and that's my take on it I, I i don't dislike it i like it and yet you know if you ask me again in a year i'll probably be like oh yeah nothing happened in that issue and then i'll read it and i'll be like a lot happened there it, it, it's it's odd it's odd in that respect because it just feels like this is not one that feels like it is absolutely important to any ongoing storyline but it would be a shame to skip it oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that like it's weird it, like it's not like i can say oh just like you can ignore that one you can but you shouldn't you know <laughs> no i'm gonna i'm gonna make a strong case for this one i think it's a good brian yeah. issue in a lot yeah, of so ways i, I want to talk about it's that of, it's, it's interesting it's where i'm at yeah absolutely i'd say it's uh, indispensable but yet yeah you kind of read it and it really does need to be in sequence with the others yeah in isolation i think it's uh it feels a little light andrew how are you feeling about it um i think i'm close to math I, i'm not super into the story itself i think it misses a lot of opportunities that it presents itself with particularly on the characterization front although i acknowledge the Brian work is good. I, I find some of the Megan work lacking, and I think Killen and Cerise don't Are, do anything. They're, they uh, don't need to be again, in the story. Opportunity? That's a wasted true. opportunity. That's I was mm -hmm. I was thinking the same thing. You have these two brand new characters who you barely know anything about them, especially Cerise. And this could have been ground that could have been used to learn more about them. And yeah, you get nothing. They're just cameos in the story. And then the other side of that, though, which I find kind of interesting, um, um, Alan Davis is drawing hard in this issue and i think when you read between the lines of like the interviews with davis his big challenge on excalibur was always time it, it was they wanted him to keep a monthly schedule and he didn't know how to work that way and he was not one of those artists who could be happy with subpar work um, so a lot of times when you're seeing a, a lesser alan davis issue it's just because he didn't have enough time right here everything looks refined uh, it looks like, I don't know if he had the time or not, but it, it really looks like he was able to give it the care that he wanted. Uh, and for that reason, I'm a little disappointed that the story doesn't elevate itself to meet the level of the art. Huh, I feel like I'm going the other way on it. I really liked this issue a lot more upon rereading it. I guess I really was intrigued by the juxtaposition between the silliness and the incredibly dark thoughts and realizations that Brian is having. And maybe that was me giving it too much credit, but I found that juxtaposition really effective. Well, I could say that this issue does have, in one picture, the perfect encapsulation, if I'm saying that word correctly, <laughs> of Captain Britain. So I'm looking at page 10, panel number one. There's no words on this panel at all. 
and it's beautiful. It's beautifully drawn. And if they put words in there, I think it would have just gotten in the way. But this is Captain Britain in a nutshell. You know, the picture has a giant teapot. The teapot happens to have lips on it. There's water pouring out of the teapot. He is just swept along in this uh, stream of water. And there's a giant teacup that's overflowing. And there's a giant plate of cookies off to the side. And this is Captain Britain. You know, look at him. I and mean, he's this broad-shouldered hero. You know, he should be out punching Dr. Doom or something, but he's not. He's like getting swept along by all this weird stuff and he's just helpless against it. I, you know, to me, that panel's always just captured who he is to me. So this issue, um, you know, to your point, Anna, there's some really good stuff about Captain Britain in here. And I think that really is a him in a nutshell <laughs> right there. Well, and I mean, I can't help but note it's a very sexy teapot as well with the very shiny red <laughs> lips and the kind of sensual curves. And I do think that matters in terms of some of the conflicts that Brian is faced with here because a lot of his conflicts are very gendered. And I think the very sort of like sensual feminine nature of that teapot actually matters um, in terms of him being him being swept away and in, in, in that way, especially with the contrast between him and Megan in this issue. Okay, well, I want to talk about Brian. I'll make my case for it a little bit, starting with our introduction to Brian in this issue, where he has the scene where he's fighting all the all the monsters. Right? It is heavy-handed the caption boxes, but at the same time, to me, this is insight into Brian that we haven't necessarily had before. You know, we get this this description of how he has to modulate his strengths. I'll read some of it. So when Brian Braddock first became Captain Britain, he saw his prodigious strength as a curse. In a world of frail humans, every gesture, every grip, every touch had to be gauged. Even in his foulest rage, he learned to pull his punches. Bitter experience, the death of an innocent, taught Captain Britain the importance of restraint. But that is not a concern today. Today, the gloves are off. And then there's this relentless animal fury, blah, blah, blah. And though his situation seems without hope, he feels a surge of euphoric relief as long suppressed rage is released in devastating physical force in the face of mortal danger. His spirit soars and he's punching this incredibly goofy owl in its feathered (laughs) chest. I feel so bad for that owl. It's so, yeah. And then there's the later one where he punches the Cheshire cat in the face and punches its teeth out. But yeah, I don't know. I was reading this sequence and I thought, you know, you can say on the one hand that the caption boxes are heavy handed and everything, but at the same time, they're Claremontian. They are Claremontian and sort of the purple prose there contrasted with the silliness of the setting. And then this insight into Brian's rage and the way he suppresses his rage and the desire for release. I don't know. I found that juxtaposition very effective. I found that this was insight into Brian that we hadn't had up to this point. I can't think of another scene where we're getting these kind of insights in the context of Excalibur anyway. But don't you kind of hate that? trope of like the ultra masculine hero whose life is so hard because they're too awesome and have to restrain <laughs> their awesomeness. I do, but then it's it's like subverting that with the imagery, right? Like I think it's not simple because of the nature of the conflict that he's put in here. And then the way that this develops, right, with him having to realize that his conflict is kind of stupid. I I don't know if I think it's subverting it. I I mean maybe. I'm I'm sort of between you two. I don't hate it as much as I think Andrew does. But I also don't buy that it's subverted. I think that comics have room to talk about maybe it's cliche to us because none of us are six foot four blonde hawking linebacker types to where we're like, oh, but my life's so hard. But like that person exists and I think that they deserve a hero too. 
and yeah. Brian can be that hero. Does it do anything for me? No, but I mean, I get it, and I think it's I think it's funny. I think it's fine to have a story that acknowledges that just because you're pretty, that doesn't mean your life is perfect. I I think that's an okay storyline, and I don't think it's subverted. I think that is the story here. Maybe people have bigger problems than Brian, but I I, I think it's okay to say you know the story is ultimately about Brian coming to a realization that you know maybe I am being too much of a brute sometimes. I agree, but at the same time, when you see it within the context of the nature of this world, Brian is inventing all of these situations that he's putting right. himself through. He's inventing mm -hmm. these goofy, humiliating situations that he is putting himself through. And to me, that's where I'm getting at kind of the subversive angle of it, because that's his psychology. This is how he's imagining himself, and we're watching that play out. And doesn't that add a layer of complexity to it? I mean, really? I'm not selling you on that, eh? <laughs> I, I, I get, I'm thinking. I, I want to be sold. <laughs> I, 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 mean, I, I, I get your point. I question the question. Like, I understand the argument you're making. Do I think it adds a layer of complexity? I don't know because I don't know that it needs it. Story is sometimes our anxieties make themselves worse because we are a slave to our own anxieties, right? But I don't think that that is better or worse because he's a six foot four pretty blonde linebacker i think that if anything the story is you know pretty people have problems too and he's got inferiority problems but to me that's brian braddock and has been since issue yeah. one right like to to me it's not subversive it's just the problem with brian braddock is not and i don't mean like the i don't i mean this is going to sound this is going to sound insulting when i don't mean it to be brian's problem is i just want to be able to be a nerdy scientist it's what i've dreamed of since i was a child but because i look like this i'm locked in this world that's his issue and i don't think that needs a subversion i think that it's okay to to talk about that privilege is situational and yes there are privileges to being a you know being a superhero but also maybe i have a drinking problem also maybe i have inferiority <laughs> problems i mean i always it's always weird where people you know like, i'm a black guy so i'm always talking about in my work i'm talking about racial privilege and but like i'm also male so i have privileges that are part of being male but i have disadvantages that socially come from my racial construction but also i'm really smart it's not like i'm unaware of that you know like like the fact that i'm smart and educated is a privilege in life and i think that this story is about acknowledging that that exists for Brian, but I but I don't think it's new because that's why I said I don't think that this is doing anything that Excalibur hasn't been doing. I think this is Davis putting that stake in the ground and saying, here's where I here's who Brian is for me. I'm making this explicit. But like we've talked about this a bunch on our show because it's what we do here. Yeah, I think it's kind of a continuation of um, one of the earlier Brian arcs because because what you're talking about, Mav, I think is um, sort of a the state of Brian exactly as you're saying. But I think he's trying to move forward with him, and, and in that character arc, I think what he's trying to say in this issue is that brian isolates himself and that brian is his own problem and if he just allows himself to go along with things um he can be part of the group he can be involved and that's that's maybe the growth we're looking for i don't know that it's true but i i, I think maybe davis is saying that i think that's i think that's a simplistic way of looking at people's anxiety. oh yeah <laughs> but, but yeah I, yeah but, really but, is. But, but yeah but i don't think that's but i don't i don't think the flaw there is that brian's a jock i think that davis is being a little short-sighted in that respect on you know it's it, it is kind of a pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of speech if, if you take it that seriously but it, it's you're your own worst enemy i think yeah. that's maybe the simplest iteration of it sure yeah because we could read a lot 
into this. I think there's other layers here. And I think that uh, you mentioned them, you know, he's a, you know, a man of science who was once, you know, one person, a scientist, a researcher, kind of got just thrown into the superhero world. And, you know, he always has this kind of level of frustration. I think if you were to dig a little deeper, and this might just be reading too into it, I don't know if this was ever spelled out anywhere, but just his frustration as a man of science and logic and rationality being confronted with all this absurdity constantly, and he's trying to make sense of it. And on top of that, he's kind of a stiff upper lip, you know, <laughs> you know, aristocratic British guy, you know, so he wants everything to make sense around him. He wants the world to follow patterns. And it just isn't in Excalibur at all for him. And really, in his solo adventures, it didn't either. And so he always has this frustration at his core. And we've seen him explode in rage at other times, right? Like uh, with Kurt, how Kurt got his leg broken to begin with. Ironically, he's getting his cast off in this same issue. But that's a reminder to, you know, he's had these outbursts before. And he's had this kind of uh, volcanic rage before. And if it's coming from this kind of frustration with, I want to make sense of the world around me and I can't constantly and I'm constantly thrown in these weird situations. I think we could read that. I don't know if it's spelled out enough and maybe it is later on and I'm just not remembering it. I think um, you could see it in the juxtaposition with the, the scene of Kurt's cast coming off, right? The uh-huh. idea of Brian is healing as Kurt is healing. Yeah, yeah. One physically, one mentally, emotionally, uh, yeah. definitely. And I That's think how uh, I took it anyway. Yeah, I would say so. And going back, you know, to Anna, you said there's a layer of complexity here. I think that there is, um, you know, him going into this world and it being what it is, throwing all these threats at him and trying to restrain him and defeat him because of what he's bringing to the world in terms of his rage and how he's reacting to things. You know, that is pretty deep. And there's other layers there, I think, to Brian that could be dug into. I think this issue just doesn't go all the way there. And maybe that's okay because you're saving stuff for down the road, you know? I guess I was interested, though, in some of the specific things that he imagines within the context of this fantasy space, you know, the specific things that he imagines as being a threat to himself. I mean, I was interested in the bondage (laughs) because that's been a theme with Brian. But I mean, also, the fact that he imagines himself you know getting spat out the you know sexy fetishistic lips of a teapot and then he imagines himself (laughs) getting sprayed in the face with flowers and then constrained with the vines of flowers like he doesn't imagine himself being attacked by another big burly guy this is how he imagines himself getting restrained and attacked and humiliated and i did find that interesting and i particularly sort of found the vine scenes interesting because to me that's a moment where yeah maybe that's not spelled out but we already mentioned how davis is really at his peak in this issue and I agree this issue feels really really crisp and I think that that's part of what I enjoyed about it because I've been sort of reading ahead some of the other issues and I do find that his style gets a little bit looser in some of the later issues but this one after a couple of issues off he's really really crisp and yeah that imagery with Brian getting swallowed up by the vines and kind of his expression there and the way they're woven through sort of his arms and legs and Davis puts a lot of detail into that image and sort of into the progression of that sequence I found that a really symbolically interesting sequence and I get that you could simplify it to just like he needs to learn to control his temper but we could have had that done again in a simplistic way of him just fighting a rock monster or something but that's not what we have we have this kind of terrifying seduction by these vines which you know start to close over his face as he's being sort of tortured with these thoughts about himself and then he tears himself out of it I don't know I've just been finding the prevalence of bondage imagery in some of Brian's nightmares sort of interesting and I don't know I think that there's a lot of things that you could do with that if you were so inclined to bring kind of the the visual symbolism into it 
Well, I have a clarification question for you then, Anna, because so you phrased it as Brian imagines himself, given what the the ending is, where it's like, oh, this is Joy Boy reversing the insanity of the Red Queen. Like, I read this as a manifestation of unconscious desires, not as a conscious imagining. So if the bondage is specific to Brian, I don't know that I believe it is so much as I think Davis inherits from Claremont a love of BDSM just in general. Um, and maybe, and it might be his own. Like, there's a lot of BDSM in, imagery in Excalibur. Period. Not just to Brian, but to everybody. But if we if we apply it to Brian, then it becomes a subconscious thing, and not so much a agency. If only I could be the submissive. I don't think Brian has that. I think Brian maybe you know subconsciously would be freed by bottoming, but doesn't know that about himself. If anything. Well, so would your complaint be that he doesn't come to that realization in an issue like this? It's not so much a complaint. It was more a question for you. If that's the story, then I'm more inclined to go with the bondageness being important to Brian as opposed to being important to Alan. <laughs> if that makes it I'm, like, I'm, in, like, I'm inclined to, <laughs> yeah, I'm inclined to be generous and read it as important to Brian because there is a narrative of emasculation that runs through this whole comic in which Megan's ability yes. to sort of assimilate into this world contrasts his inability to do so, and he imagines himself being swallowed up by connotatively feminine vines through his inability to exist in this space, and I do think that that's an interesting conflict. Anyway, Andrew, you were going to add something a moment ago. Well, I was just going to say there's other pieces to the symbolism that might and i, I want to clarify here i am coming over to anna's side pretty quickly because i'm starting to see more to it I, I think there's pieces to the symbolism that that intersect really nicely like the vines to me i i don't necessarily read as bdsm although i think that's maybe there i read in conjunction with the drowning that idea okay. of anxiety yeah but the thing i really like is that captain britain's subconscious enemy isn't just magic which we know brian hates magic mav already talked about it it's whimsy mm. uh, this idea that brian is antithetical to whimsy because because that's pretty much been a mission statement for this book since sword is drawn right um so having him get so frustrated by that and just desire to have a physical manifestation that he can punch i, I think that makes sense and i think he's not necessarily you know learning from mistakes here i think he's achieving some sort of catharsis uh by being able to directly combat the very concept of whimsy that is also what isolates him from the rest of the Excalibur team. Ooh, very nicely done. I love That's that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could talk more about the Alice in Wonderland intertext, but I also wanted to ask Andrew about your complaints about the Megan stuff before we sort of move away from that, because we were sort of talking about that a moment <laughs> ago. So hit me with it, Andrew. What do you hate about Megan here? Okay, so first off, why do you hate Megan, Andrew? Why do you hate <laughs> Megan? <laughs> <laughs> Who could possibly hate Megan? <laughs> She won't date me. Um, no. Acknowledgement. <laughs> 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 okay. Because the symbolism there doesn't really speak to her. She's just here to foil mm -hmm. Brian. Yeah, I don't like okay. that. I, I think there's an opportunity to reveal here. But also, I don't like the lining up of Alice in Wonderland imagery with Megan because okay. like there's implications there about grooming for anyone who knows the contextual history of C.S. Lewis and Alice in Wonderland, which I don't like for an 18 year old character who's in a relationship with a 30 year old abusive man. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it does a lot of bad things. 
Um, I do like it coming back to something Anna was saying as a contrast to Brian, because the whole point of Megan in this is she can just go along with anything, right? Uh, so she's able to include herself in a way that Brian isn't uh, and showcasing that that openness to the world is a value that Brian is lacking to, to me helps me understand their relationship a little bit. So I do think there's positives here. I just think the vessel by which we got to the positives raised some uncomfortable intertexts. I think it's interesting because when I read this, immediately what I took at face value was Brian and Megan have very different experiences just because of simply who they are, him being this aggressive, you know, I punch everything, you know, that I see first and ask questions later. And Megan has always been depicted as like this more gentle, kinder, not that she isn't strong, she's very strong and very powerful, but she, you know, just reacts to the world very differently. And I think she sees the best in the world. You know, the thing that I'm intrigued about, not to get us off track from talking about Megan, you know, we, we mentioned earlier, you don't see much of Cerise and Kailun here. They're both self-professed warriors, right? In fact, we saw Kailun fight in a war, you know, a revolution back in his home world. And Cerise, you know, declares herself a warrior, I believe, in her uh, her little uh, soliloquy that she would give everybody her elevator speech when mm-hmm. she first started showing up. <laughs> so these two are fighters as well. And we don't see their reactions to what happened when they showed up, you know? I wonder if they had a similar fight, fight, fight kind of impulse and then maybe just got through it quicker than Brian did, but we just don't see it. But yeah, I'm just I, when I read this this time, I really started thinking about that. Uh, Kylan and Cerise, uh, what about them and their reactions to this? Or does it even matter? They um, don't. Because, yeah, <laughs> they're such side characters. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, I I want them to. They're, they don't need to be here. They're here be- because the story wanted them to not be around Kitty and Alistair. So Davis kind of put them there, forgetting that, like, you know, so, okay, well, Kitty's got no one to talk to because um, Cerise and Kylan are gone, too. But, like, the story has no idea what happened to Farron and Micromax. They and, don't tell us uh, where they went. Still and, and, and Yeah, and I, I, mean, I don't really care. But it, but it is a but it is just a you know we've just moved some places like they're just here and I, I, I don't. But we do get to see uh, Kailun and Cerise doing Alice in Wonderland stuff, you know, which yeah. is kind of fun. Um, you know, oh, he's, croquet uh, is happening, yeah. Flamingo yeah. croquet, which you can get a flamingo croquet set on Amazon. Actually, I learned that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a thing uh, in the real world but yeah i think that being able to see them in the alice wonderland scenarios and not just brian and megan but you're right they are just kind of wasted and off to the side and uh, some side uh, scenarios that are happening the grain of the kylan part that i did like was just the way he did embrace the childlike wonder which i feel like can be a character read of that character i mean we talked about how you know mentally he's kind of a kid he lived in kind of a kid fantasy space and so we can bring that to the story but with cerise we have no background for her so yeah. she is very pointless in the story i will agree there <laughs> The weirdness of the story for me is I think the story does a good job of showing us the growth that we are supposed to attribute to Brian. I think it's trying to take for granted a bunch of growth for Megan that is not on the page. It's it, I mean, do I need it? No, because I've seen it. But Megan talks in science here for some reason. Like when yeah. when she she suddenly explains to Brian, no, here's what happened. The reversal of blah, 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 blah and sciencey stuff. And I'm I'm okay with that being the explanation. I'm okay with Megan getting there because Megan has emotional intelligence that Brian lacks. I don't understand how Megan is able to explain it all of a sudden 
because she's barely literate. And I don't mean that in, as an insult. She shouldn't have to. She shouldn't have to have value by suddenly being the sciencey one. And it feels like it might be a it might be, you know, again, Davis is not the writer that some that Claremont was, or that even, you know, he's got less experience than all of our fill-in authors that we've had. So it's just that's a that's a shortcut that I think he's taking in order to make her seem smart, but it feels like the wrong kind of smart. I like when he's when when she's telling Rachel, stop treating me like a child i'm not stupid because that's honest that is an honest version of you know you're not stupid you're right i shouldn't be treating you like a child but not being treated like a child is different than having you know a phd in psychology which she suddenly seems yeah. to have here and that's a, and that's <laughs> and, and that's you know in child psychology and i'm like whoa where where'd all that come from that was a weirdness for me i did also want to clarify like just because andrew you said you know the 18 year old with the 30 year old just because i don't want to bring it up every episode and, and it's gonna, i don't think ages are going to matter as much moving forward as they did in claremont land like i'm not sure megan's still <laughs> clean here and I'm not sure Brian's still dirty. Yeah, I think yeah. their I think their ages are much more nebulous now. That, I mean, uh, otherwise we're gonna bring bring when we get to like pride and wisdom, it's gonna be seriously an issue. Like I think that <laughs> yeah, I that's think what that, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, I think like a lot of comic book characters, right? They're in like age limbo, even right. though they and kind of be between eighteen and thirty five, right? Right. I don't think Brian's supposed to be a man in his thirties anymore. I think that. 20s is probably how we're supposed to read him i think that he's getting younger in order to make that davis de-aged him yeah and i think that and huh. i don't think and I, and I don't think there's i don't think there's a specific time i'm just thinking of things that are moving forward there's going to be a lot of a couple of issues ago i'll do it without spoilers a couple of issues ago he was flashing back to that time when he was in grad school presumably right after undergrad and it didn't feel like that was supposed to have been a decade or two decades ago it felt like that was supposed to have been a few years ago so which would make him 27 you know you're like, oh, like like i read it differently i thought it was supposed to be like a decade okay ago. so so things like that and i and i definitely don't think megan's supposed to read as oh she's 17 or 18 i think megan's you know 23 24 and i think it, that's never been said it just that's how the, these characters feel to me now in a way that they didn't used to um under claremont Claremont, she definitely wonder, read as younger to me. I wonder with uh, with Brian, I mean, he did undergo a literal rebirth. He was killed by the Fury and brought back by Merlin, if I remember correctly. I wonder if he's meant to have been brought back at a younger age. I don't know. Well, I also I also think that he thinks Psylocke is younger too, and which will matter more next issue but than it does now yeah well i had i had one more question about megan before we sort of move off of this section of the book which is that we've complained about the alice in wonderland imagery being applied to her here and yet i feel that when we were talking about excalibur number five and that imagery being applied to (laughs) courtney ross that we had quite a different take on it so is it just the characters that this is being applied to or is it a difference in context that's sort of given us pause here both the the context of the characters courtney ross Mm -hmm. is portrayed as a very adult mature independent woman Mm -hmm. megan is the exact opposite of that so you think sort of the juxtaposition with courtney because in courtney's case it's almost like she's defying the innocence that she's trying Mm -hmm. to be sutured into whereas megan is sort of falling into the innocence is that like a fair kind of that's maybe a simplistic take on it but is that sort of where you're getting at maybe Uh, yeah i I think i think it's the connotations that make me uncomfortable i don't think they don't work you know what i mean like i I can see how they're not intended to do that Uh, again i think the way that 
that we've been tracking the relationship between Brian and Megan, um, having her slot into this particular image, which has a wealth of context surrounding it, right? The role of Alice in Wonderland as a fantasy construct in a variety of different fantasies. I, I, I find that maybe a little tone deaf, but this yeah, could also be yeah. anachronistic, right? Maybe it didn't really read that way back in the 1990s. I don't yeah, know. Maybe. I, I was in high school, so it's tough to say. Yeah, <laughs> when this I, came I out. mean, I I, would, I was in college by the time this one came out, but only barely. And I don't remember reading it as I didn't like it, and I still don't because it made more sense with Courtney. It was Courtney's thing. Courtney is defying expectation, like you said. Courtney is fighting against the narrative that like she is being forced into when she's mm-hmm, when she's mm-hmm. when she's being yeah yeah, Alice. and that and that is an interesting story. When you do Megan, I'm going to remove any problematic nature of of with it and just talk about just the character on the page as this is intended here the character on the page is megan is a magical girl so we can put her in the magical girl role okay <laughs> that's not that's not terribly interesting to me it's more interesting to me when it's courtney ross is the ice queen banker and she's gonna think her way out of the magical girl role that that's a more interesting story to me. I don't think it does anything to like toss toss well, an Alice that, on Megan. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I look back on the story you're talking about where Courtney was in Arcade's murder world and she was kind of in an Alice role as well. And as you say, she was very much agitating pushing back against that the entire time. You know, that story followed her journey through that world from start to finish. This mm. one, we only see Megan when she's kind yeah, of arrived, yeah. so to speak. She's already there. So I think this is less about you know, Megan and anything really to do with Megan other than showing us stuff we already know about her. It's a little more that Megan is like a mirror being held up to Brian, you know, like, hey, I'm able to like just go with the flow and enjoy myself and have fun with this. And you can't, (laughs) you know, like you have to like see trouble where there isn't any trouble. So I think she's serving a little more as a like a juxtaposition against him here. I actually have a problem with that. Not the reading. I I agree with the reading. The, the, The problem I have is that Um, In terms of slotting into roles from Alice in Wonderland, first up, Megan is established as the White Rabbit, and I want to read something into that, but I couldn't find anything. But then she puts on the Alice dress, and I'm a little annoyed by that because Brian is already Alice in the story. Yeah. Um, so by having Megan wear that dress, you're almost sort of splitting the identification a little but bit. But she's a blonde girl. Uh, it's just Disney-ish. Yeah, it's that simple, it right? I don't yeah, know. Just... That does make the gender stuff more simplistic because by putting Megan in the Alice role, we're saying that Brian's not Alice. And I think Brian being Alice would be way more interesting. He is, narratively, right? He's, yeah. he's the rationalist being encountering this fantasy world and navigating its individual secrets. And like chasing after Megan as the rabbit is a more interesting way to put the this sort of context okay, on yeah, these characters really i think yeah <laughs> it does kind of i was but looking like, for well, yeah I'm... but like I, I take your critique there yeah because the problem i keep running up to with the brian and megan relationship is that even if it's codependent or something i mean you know whatever that's a kind of relationship that exists but i just sometimes really can't understand what brian is offering megan whereas i really yeah. definitely can see what brian what megan is offering brian she is making him do so much growth and learning about himself through her superpowered empathy and yet what exactly is he giving to her and i keep struggling with that question honestly she's got gold megan is rich oh sure but like that i don't mean i don't mean i don't mean that i mean i mean emotional and strength i I mean yeah yeah yeah. oh yeah okay yeah uh, yeah it reads this is going to sound horribly problematic but i mean it in a them as realistic characters it makes more sense when he is 
the to her mature older man and she is the you know i need a daddy issues girl than it does when they're when they're written as equals yeah, <laughs> like I, if, I think like i agree you can you can be codependent when she is struggling for if old megan is i just want someone who loves me for me who just who loves everything about me and brian does then you can say she's wrong but you can say you get it right new megan and new brian and it's like oh well they are in love because they're blonde (laughs) 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 i mean i don't know like that's that's what i got right well, there's the context of going back to the Captain Britain stuff of her just admiring him so much, right? And again, I did find that very believable despite being very problematic, but it's getting additionally confusing as she kind of grows as a character and it doesn't seem like she would need that as much now as she used to. So I think the thing we're supposed to buy into is that she sees his true nature and that's what draws her to him because he is a hero deep down despite all of these surface flaws. But that's a very uh, subjective view that I think you're either going to buy or not buy depending on how sympathetic you are towards Brian. Given where things go, I think we're also supposed to buy into some soul maintenance issues yes that, definitely that, that, mm-hmm. that i don't necessarily share but yeah. Yeah. also i <laughs> no, also I I'm, I'm not terribly fond of that <laughs> i'm not terribly fond of that storyline in general mm-hmm. i am a yeah. jaded man who's dead inside so you know fine revisiting that right right but but uh, but i think that that's part of it right where it's problematic is that claremont wrote these characters in such a way that brian yeah. was positioned as the jock who's ultimately the bad guy. And he tricked us into wanting to root for Kurt and Megan. Like even, even though Andrew never did, the stories are written such a what? way. That no, I mean, you said you didn't want, you, you wanted her to be with neither of them. I'm saying you said, Oh yeah. Uh, Megan. I is, did Kurt. Okay. Okay. Well the story, I think once, I think Claremont's version of the story wants you to want Kurt to win. Yes. But, yeah. No question. But, but Davis, wants you to see them as more of a Kurt's got his own thing going on, which is coming up in a couple of issues. Um, and then, um, and, <laughs> and Megan is, you know, predestined to be with her soulmate, Brian. And I don't care. Like it's been 30 years and, and that's still their story today. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I guess I don't care about their soulmateness that, <laughs> that I've never have. And, and that's, that's a problem, I guess. Yeah. There are two characters that I always have really liked. I like both of them a lot, but together. Yeah. I've never totally like bought it or understood it <laughs> or, you know, or like really rooted for them to be together. Uh, you know, any of that, but I'd like some other things to work. <laughs> right. There's other couples in comics, you know, in fiction that you do, you know, and for this, yeah, you don't totally, yeah. Buy the two of them you know, together and sticking together and really care (laughs) if they do. Well, the way I always read it, particularly in Claremont's era, coming back to what Mav was saying, is that the the setup is that they need to outgrow each other. Megan needs to outgrow Brian because of the obvious, um, she needs to respect herself and all that kind of stuff. But Brian also needs to outgrow Megan in order to um, transition from his superficial attraction to her uh, into something potentially deeper. But that was how I read it until like 20 minutes ago uh, when Anna was talking about it, that there's another way out of this, right? There's Brian learning to sincerely appreciate her for who she is and Megan growing as a person within that relationship. It's not my ideal outcome, but that might be what Davis is going for in contrast to what claremont was going for well the problem is she's not what he wants right like in the generous way if we if i want to be generous and say brian could outgrow being an abusive boyfriend and just grow to appreciate her he can't he doesn't appreciate her brian is better with 
and I I know that it's not really her, or maybe it is, but like Brian's better with Courtney. Like Courtney is a better match for him. What does Brian yeah. want out of life? He wants Courtney Ross, <laughs> and Megan is not yes. Courtney Ross, Jeez. and that's but well, yeah, but but it's not Brian's fault. It's, you know, she's if she's dead, she's dead. I'm, I'm saying I'm saying Brian's ideal match is Courtney Ross. Megan is not that. So can he grow to appreciate her? I mean, well, yeah. only if she's different. <laughs> Like, the love triangle that is like Brian, Courtney, and Megan, though, is that you're supposed to want to root for Brian and Megan because yeah, Courtney is the one that doesn't, that, that, that <laughs> Courtney would feed into Brian being his worst self, and Megan, in theory, helps him be his better self. It's mm-hmm. just she has to do literally all of the emotional labor in this relationship, which is <laughs> how it becomes painful for me sometimes because she's a super-powered empath, and that can be a little bit of a, a painful female narrative for me sometimes. That's a good insight about Megan and Brian, yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's put a pin in Brian and Megan because obviously we're going to be talking about them again in future stuff because I want to talk about this Kurt Cass scene and some of the Kurt and Kitty stuff in this issue because, uh, yeah, this opening scene. <laughs> like, definitely the thing I remembered most about this issue and I don't even know what direction I kind of want to go with it. I, like, didn't know how far I should go with this kind of being an exploitation scene or not. I do think that's a factor in the scene and I don't know how much it's just me but given how much work you've done on kind of BDSM and X-Men, Andrew, maybe I'll let you for, take a first crack at it. Am I wrong for reading an exploitation <laughs> context into this first page of this comic? No. And, and what I love about it is it's taking that cliche scene from Burton's Batman mm-hmm. uh, and just interweaving it with the sexual symbolism you're identifying. That is a weird cocktail to throw that into Excalibur and this, this cast scene, all that kind of stuff. It's very Davis. This is how he likes to do his opening pages leading to a splash reveal inversion mm-hmm. um but, but yeah no I, I i think it totally works it's not subtle but it is delightful well let's put a finer point on what we mean when i'm saying it's an exploitation context i mean what additional meanings are being teased here i mean there's some obvious things we get the big scissors and like kurt's pupils <laughs> zeroing in on them and what exactly is she cutting off and there's some tension there related to that followed by the silhouette panel of him with his mouth open fangs exposed head thrown back and sort of a bouffant of hair sort of at his waist so we don't really know what's going on there but then combined with violent imagery right yeah because like i mean that pose alone minus the violence of the sound that he's making although the sound could go either way so because it really depends on the kind of situation we have here i mean pain and pleasure can be bedfellows as we all know but yeah the silhouette on its own is highly highly sexual and in a really interesting way in the way that kurt is so often a liminal character when he's sexualized because the vampire fangs you know connote a certain sexual aggressiveness but then his pose here is very vulnerable and submissive and that contrast i find very very appealing and that's some of the nature of kurt as a character and the reason that kurt's sort of sexualization and even gender presentation in general can be so interesting and davis is so good at sort of playing up some of those contrasts i mean even just the scene as a series of contrasts you know it can be read as sexy with sort of the sweat and the poses and sort of playful innuendo and yet there's pain here as well there's comedy here as well there's so many different levels and layers to this scene i guess maybe the question that i'll ask is does a scene like this only work with a character like nightcrawler well it's a castration scene right and we've talked a lot about nightcrawler's fluid 
sex and gender identity. So you could argue that's maybe important, but it's also thematically consistent with sort of symbolic castration that we see Brian going through, or at least emasculation in this issue. Yeah, it's true. I just find this scene is a little bit denser to me than the Brian and the Vine scene. I couldn't really imagine Davis going this far in this way with Brian necessarily, if that seems really? fair. Really? Huh. You disagree? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, okay. So, so here's simple. This is, this is going to be weird for the first time in the history of this podcast. What are we? 55, 56 issue, episodes in. This is one that I've never read as sexual. And I get okay. that it's okay. <laughs> Listeners like, are going to disagree with you, but I will no, take no, no, your no, reading no, of no, it. No, 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 no. They're absolutely right. I get yeah. that I'm supposed to read it as sexual. Yeah. The mm-hmm. first time I read this, it's like, oh, they're cutting off Kurt's cast. And then I mm-hmm. turn the page and they cut off his cast. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. then I and I, I remember I remember this fondly. I remember they okay, they're cutting off Kurt's cast, and I turn the page and it's like, yep, they turn cut off the cast. And then they go and talk, and I'm like, and then I remember stopping and going, wait, why is this funny? And then having to go and read it again and go, oh, okay, I see. I'm supposed to think that it never read that way for me. It like I've never got the like I understand, oh, okay, I'm supposed to is she castrating him? Is she going down on him? Oh no, no, it's just the cast thing. No, like it wasn't blatant enough for me to I know. I, I know, I know, which is, as I said, this is going to be a first for this podcast. It didn't work for me. It never worked for me. And like, to, where I, to where I had to, I had to like backwards engineer it in order to like make it in, in order to get what was going on. And I was just like, uh, no, it's, and, and where it's like, you know, it's, it's like the me being to, of course they're removing this cast. It's not it, like, it was, it was so obvious to me that it's never worked as opposed to the bondage stuff with Brian that you were talking about earlier, where I'm like, yeah, okay. I, I obviously, see that one of the things that would make it work better with me for me with brian is because brian is such a self-serious character that oh my god brian's in pain what's going on you know like that that would make it work better for me whereas kurt i just assume that there's a better way out of it than you know someone's chopping his dick off right like that's not like it doesn't feel it doesn't feel the same for me so yes this one never worked for me in that respect and because of that i actually think it would work on brian but i understand that i'm going to be in the minority here i'm with you mav no you're not weird i'm right there with you (laughs) because it might have something to do yeah it might have something to do with um i read this when i was younger for the first time those impressions you know tend to stick with you um i've always interpreted something a little more innocent here and what you're supposed to like misinterpret what's happening on this page and that's simply to see he's being tortured (laughs) you know like a villain has captured nightcrawler and you know they are torturing him and he's Mm -hmm. screaming and there's you know they have implements that they're torturing him with and then you see on the next page oh you know he's just getting his cast off you know i think that something else i've always thought about this scene too is you know especially the marvel comics characters they're always like the heroes that we can relate to and you know there's plenty of people that would read this i myself haven't unfortunately fortunately i've never broken a bone or had a cast uh like he had here but there's a lot of people who would read this and be like oh yeah i know what that's like to get a cast off after having it forever and my leg is itching and it's driving me crazy and so it makes uh puts a uh, nightcrawl in the role of kind of that every man and uh, makes him very relatable so that's that's kind of what I've, what i've always brought to this <laughs> reading it i mean i write children's books so <laughs> you know i'm i bring something a little different i guess um <laughs> I do, <laughs> no, I do and, specialized like, readings of comic books for a living. Yeah. Like, yeah. like literally my whole job is this and yet it doesn't work yeah. for me. So. <laughs> 
mean, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> it's, it's just like one of the things about a denseness of a scene like this is that it can work on those multiple levels. And I do want to say a couple more things about it. We've been intellectualizing this a lot, but if I could just be like really crass for a minute here, there's also something to be said for the pure and simple carnality of the imagery at play here. Kurt's sweaty and emotional and thinking about his cock, which makes this scene about as close as a PG-13 code-approved superhero comic ever comes to being porn. And I think it's interesting that it's so often Nightcrawler in that role, pushing those boundaries in this space where male sexuality, at least in terms of the sexuality of male characters, is is traditionally disavowed. Nightcrawler seems to be able to like get away with things that other characters can't, which is a huge part of my fascination with him but it's just like you bring context to this character too yeah. i mean the way that characters yeah. that kurt's been set up in this book and when you're introduced to page one with kurt with dramatic globs of white goo sliding down his face making very extreme expressions and you don't know what's going on there are sharp implements involved there's a very sexy female hand with pointed fingernails that's a context that's being set up yeah. here and i yeah it's fine that you don't you're read it that wrong. way it's totally no. you're you're not wrong it's clearly i'm not getting i mean i and i get it like i said it just never reads that way for me and it's odd because i read sex into everything i guess the one thing i'll just flag about it before we talk about a couple of other things was just what i was getting at in terms of not going as far as this with brian it sort of comes back to something that you said mav where if it was brian it would be serious and threatening whereas when it's kurt I think it's not because of that liminality of the character. You know, I mean, there can be this scene where, because when we think about BDS, um, scenes usually involving female characters there's a lot more of kind of a genuine threat present and I don't think the genuineness of the threat is present here in the Kurt image because that's where sort of I'm getting at oftentimes with finding Kurt's exploitation particularly interesting because I, I don't want people to like get the wrong impression that like because you know we like have fun with the sexy nightcrawler stuff but I mean I don't want people to get the wrong impression that I'm sort of saying like well every time Kurt's exploited it's good and every time someone else is it's bad it's not that there's a specific nature of a scene like this where it's playing sort of with the humor in a way that I think makes it I mean you don't want to say like better as a scholar but I'll say better because he's not in genuine peril in a way that I'm actually concerned about him I can see the humorous context and that's sort of bringing me into appreciating like the campness of this scene in a way that's different than if the character was like in genuine jeopardy and I was supposed to actually be fearing for him well then question for you and again this is coming from someone who's net who never reads it that way but if i'm working at it one of the things and this ha- this ties back to what i was talking about with um with megan and brian's age the person who is who has him at her sexual mercy right here is kitty so yeah. are you are you reading her as older in order to make this not seem super problematic or because again fast forward about 20 or 30 episodes for us she's going to un- unambiguously not be a kid anymore soon so are we are we starting to read her as it's okay to put her in an either castration or blowjob joke because you need to in order to like I don't think this is supposed I don't think this is supposed to be weird. I don't think this is supposed to be obscene or problematic or you know pedophilic towards Kitty. But in order to make the joke work right, you sort of have to give her some adult agency that we don't normally attribute to her up until this point. I wouldn't go that far with it because I don't think the sexual context of the scene is explicit enough that that's okay. necessarily a factor. I think it can get away with it because there's a sexual exploitation context of it, but it's 
also clear that that's not what's going on. So, I mean, you could argue that that's problematic to the extent that it's, you know, one of those having a cake and eating eating a two things, you know, Kitty is present in this exploitation context, but not because it's clearly not an exploitation context. And I can see that reading of it, but I'm kind of going to go on the side of it not being super problematic but i don't know if everyone would agree with me there uh, but yeah. that's sort of yeah i mean this issue is going to go away soon really soon it, yeah. it's going to have yeah. to so yeah mm-hmm. but i mean there is the way that this scene proceeds as well with there definitely is some interplay here with them i mean particularly the scene where he's stretching in front of her and uh, she is like pointedly ignoring what he's doing and he's doing sort of all these poses while they're having their conversation mm-hmm. i mean there's multiple layers of things going on there I I like that as a visual signal of him avoiding the things that she's trying to make him talk about. But again, in terms of continuing the exploitation context of this scene, that's definitely present as well. I mean, that one pose, like at the bottom of page three, like the first panel, like mm-hmm. <laughs> that is quite that's a my... pose. Right, right. And that's, <laughs> and like just everything about their relationship and, and it's only a couple pages in this book where, you know, she's looking directly at his crotch. And then later on, when Alistair is first introduced it's very much a not just that he's in love with rachel because oh my god rachel's gorgeous but also she is clearly intended to be too young for him kitty is Mm -hmm. supposed to be too young for him and i Mm -hmm. don't think we're supposed to i don't think davis wants us to read her as too young for alistair in the same way now she's not crushing on him as much as she used to either so so it's not as obvious but I, i think that we are not supposed to be considering her as childlike anymore so Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I do find interesting about the Kitty and Kurt relationship here, and I mean, I don't mean this in a sexual or romantic context, but there is like a maturation of their relationship, you know, like them spending time together in this context. And then later when we see Kitty worrying about Kurt and specifically worrying about him in like a very empathetic way, you know, she's worried about the fact that he avoided talking about the thing, which I feel like is a level of insight into his character we wouldn't have seen like two years of comics ago. Right. Yes. Okay. I think we're, that answers my question see uh, how far the two of them have come um, when you think back to early X-Men and how she was scared of him and uh, yeah. he was really wanted to win her over and be her friend and she kept you know kind of running away from him and then you see them here it's just you can just see all that growth that's taken place in the interim it, it's very cool when you think about it you know they have a very like you said they have a very mature uh, like working relationship here and uh, and you're right I mean Kitty is at a point in her life and they've shown her growing up enough where she's kind of gotten out of thinking about herself all the time as in her early appearances it was kind of a little bit uh you know her needs and stuff like that were most important and she's really uh, concerned about her teammates and thinking about them and not just thinking about their physical safety but you know their mental state too and uh, you're right that's absolutely a sign of her getting older can i ask the two of you one question before we move to final thoughts which is why does kurt not want kitty to go to germany because she's not in the team up that or in the Marvel. In the, <laughs> That's in, what I was in, thinking, ma'am. Yeah, yeah I was she's thinking. Not in the Marvel Comics present with you then. I, then. No, like, I mean, I guess we're supposed to be like, oh, he needs alone time. And she tries to give him, he blames himself for Rachel. It's it's weak at best. I mean, I, I think that we're supposed to go, Kurt needs some alone time because he's dealing with the trauma of Rachel being injured. And it's like, Neh. I mean, that's not how, it's not consistent on how he behaves 
nor is it consistent on how she behaves, nor is the fact that he wants to go alone consistent. Like the fact that he wants to go alone, neither of them should have a problem with each other. Mojo Mayhem, Kurt Kitty's like, hey guys, I'm leaving and going on you know, to follow a band. And everybody's like, okay, bye. See you when I see you. And that's like how, that's how they're supposed to be with each other. So I can't, I mean, I could invent something, but honestly, I can't read that as anything other than because he needs to be in a solo story and we just need to get him off the board. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a trope. I mean, it's definitely a trope of comics and fiction in general, you know, where the, the one character has to be on a, a side mission alone. And so they say, this is personal. Only I can handle this. I'm not like, going to bring outsiders into my personal problems. And it's like, oh, come now. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> outsiders, she's basically your little sister. Like, it's not. Yes, <laughs> it's exactly. Not, yeah, it's not a it doesn't work. But OK, fine, whatever. Yeah, he's like, it is personal. He's like, no, thank you. It is personal. I'm like, seriously, you can't tell her more about this, Kurt? <laughs> Come on. I don't know how much I want to get into it because it involves bringing forward stories from the future but and it's stories that aren't written by Davis. But I can point out to like four other instances of Kurt behaving similarly with people yeah. who he is ostensibly close to, specifically involving trips back to Germany and the circus. Mm -hmm. This happens in a later Excalibur issue. He refuses mm -hmm. to take Colossus and Kitty with him back to the circus. So I agree that could be reading too much into it here. He maybe just has to make the refusal for the context of making the Marvel Comics present story work. But at the same time, sort of the firmness of his refusal and the fact that Kitty is hurt by it, I do think is an interesting character beat for these two. And I do find it an interesting character beat that he doesn't want her to go with him to that place specifically. And I don't know whether we're going to do it issue or an episode about the marvel comics presents story i desperately want to but we just did like a wolverine nightcrawl episode not too long ago so i'm not sure yet but i would really like to cover it because it could be an opportunity for me to say nice things about scott lobdell because i actually really like that story a lot and a lot of it is the gene colin art but which i'd also want to talk about but um anyway maybe we can revisit tell that us in the comments another time <laughs> yeah <laughs> know, well people want us to cover everything i'm sure they'll say yes but yeah, we still true. owe them an episode on air apparent and we're way past when we should have done that so i know <laughs> how far do you open the door though i mean they guest star excalibur guest stars in issues of the mighty thor and you know they pop up in other places how I far know. do you open that gate <laughs> i know i know that, that but thor I, book is really bad <laughs> thor book yes we did we did we did read that for <laughs> the context of something else but um but anyway i do find that character beat between them interesting and i definitely find it interesting that kitty is hurt by it at the very least because i do think it suggests mm -hmm. um an evolution of their relationship and their relationship isn't done evolving all right let's move to some final thoughts stuff that we didn't get a chance to cover from this issue other moments that we wanted to touch on i'll give you give you first crack at it mav if you would like eh, yeah okay this is silly and it's just a little pet peeve of mine that has to do with comic book science i will read the line that really bugs me it is on page two it is a, 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 of this <laughs> comic you're oh, lucky okay. Professor Xavier said yeah, it was yeah, okay yeah. to remove the cast, Kurt. <laughs> I'd have left it on for another month. Professor Xavier is like depending on <laughs> depending on when you're reading is either an anthropologist or maybe a psychologist, maybe a biologist, but a he geneticist. Not, yeah, yeah. Well, geneticism, <laughs> but even with genetics, he knows some stuff. But like usually when he when he has a genetics problem, he calls Moira. Xavier doesn't know when to take a 
a cast off any more than I do. Like, he's like, like, why did you ask him? Honestly, the fact that it's Xavier, it's like Kitty is as much an omni scientist as Xavier is. She could just say, I have x-rayed it. You're fine. It was a weird call. And when and rereading this book this time, I was like, oh, yeah, that thing's in this one. Why did he do that? Why did they ever even consult with Xavier in the first place, as opposed to, you know, Dr. Smith down the street? Like, they just, like, <laughs> like, like Xavier is Xavier is a guy they know with a different specialty who lives half a globe away. <laughs> Like, and visited I, them once, right, in the past yeah, few issues. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah. He he was around the one time. Like Xavier didn't put the cast on. Why don't we just ask our our general practitioner? I I don't understand why Xavier is in this conversation. I know. And that I was trying. I was <laughs> trying to weird. make it work in my head. I was like, okay, well, like, does he know through telepathy that like Kurt is healed? And I'm like, that's not how his powers work. I don't know why no. he would have any insight into that at all. The only way he could know through telepathy is if Kurt knew that he was healed. I know. And I know. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> And then Kirk could just say, right? So it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. No. Or you could, or you could just use an X-ray machine. They are very rich, <laughs> you know. Or I, hell, if you told me Kitty phased into his leg and felt around and it was okay, I'd be like. <laughs> gross but okay fine <laughs> like like i have a million better ways of doing it other than we called professor xavier and he says it's okay to take your cast off <laughs> they could have just said the doctor the doctor said yes yeah. <laughs> i just yeah. left it at that <laughs> okay andrew did you have a final thought for us before we leave this issue behind i'll just quickly say um the editorial note is wrong um terry cavanaugh uh, brian makes a comment about the last time with arcade and the crazy gang terry cavanaugh attributes it to marvel team up where the actual last time would have been Excalibur five and six, and Terry Cavanaugh edited those issues. So, oh god, Terry, <laughs> probably should have wow. got. Wow, <laughs> yeah, we all have an off day, right? <laughs> yeah, I feel bad that we didn't talk about the Red Queen Joy Boy thing much, but I guess I'll just note that it's an interesting imagery with the two of them though i don't know what else i want to kind of say about it if if listeners have comments about it feel free to add us uh but i just wanted to note kitty's amazing uh popcorn sweater which is a wonderful piece of period fashion that she's wearing with the turtleneck off one shoulder and this is an epic piece of 1992 fashion worn by kitty love it with the messy hair love it off the one shoulder this is just some some wonderful character designed by davis and he does great work throughout the issue how it's sort of sliding off of one shoulder or not as she moves around it's just he does such good work with casual clothes and i really really appreciated it it's dumb but little details like that they really bring you into the context of this world and i really appreciate that level of care and we've talked a bunch of times on this episode about how much care this particular issue feels like it had and i think that that's an instance of that so that's my final thought let's come to you jason with some final thoughts what are you desperate to talk about before we leave this issue forever behind Sure, just a just a couple little things. Uh, one of them is Cap's thought balloons on page nine. I'm gonna flip there myself actually, and he thinks to himself, "It's crazy, insane, no option." And I th- sat back and thought about that when I was reading this issue, and I'm like, "That just might be his mission statement in life." <laughs> you know, <laughs> this just encapsulates just like him flying out of the teapot. You know, this encapsulates Captain Britain, and you know, I think this issue is a pretty decent you know, 
if you want to know who Captain Britain is and you're unfamiliar with him, it's actually not a bad way to get start to get to know him is picking this issue up because it does tell you a lot about him. He may not go quite as deep like we talked about earlier as uh, we would like, but it does, you know, tell us a lot about him along the way as he kind of goes through this journey. Page 12, <laughs> I wonder about this village that they're investigating. Uh, they're like, oh, yeah. die Thomas at the top of the page here, on top of page 12. The entire population of this village, 27 people, all over 60 years old, have vanished without a trace. Really, for the first time, that caught me when I read it this last time. I was like, wait a minute, are there villages in England that only have 27 people living in them and they're all over 60 years old? Is that a real thing? Maybe someone can tell us if that's really a thing. I don't know if it's meant to be a retirement community. Is that what we're meant to think? I thought that was sort of what we were meant to think, but I wasn't totally sure either but yeah sure add us about it if you want yeah we, we have some british listeners i thought you were when you brought that up i thought you were going to bring up something else the fact that die is like we're le- we're led to believe that die only required megan's assistance but brian kylan and cerise went along because they were bored why did die need megan's assistance what expertise does megan have in missing people <laughs> I guess the tracking ability, maybe? I she thought could turn it was the tracking a, a ability, werewolf. yeah. Because yeah. she okay. tries to go to the werewolf form first, and I think the nature of what's going on underground ah, kind of puts okay. her in that rabbit I form. Cover, yeah, I did not figure that out. I was like, I... They, yeah, they don't They don't go out and say that. You do right. are left wondering about that. <laughs> maybe. Okay. I was wondering about whether the townspeople were actually going to return to the village or just live in this new fantasy place. That seems to raise a lot of problems for the future, which we are definitely not going to go back to. No, I know. Is it a problem? If I, I mean, if well, I've got a choice, yeah. if I've got a choice between here and Wonderland, I pick Wonderland. What's great about what's great about Earth? <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's not. It's not really a problem. I guess. I guess they they get to stay there, and it's a happy ending. Will you kindly pay attention and recite your lesson? Hmm? Oh, oh uh, how doth the little crocodile improve his shining tail and pour the waters off the... Alice, what are you talking about? Oh, I'm sorry. But you see, the caterpillar said... Caterpillar? Oh, for goodness sake. Alice, I... Oh, well. Come along, it's time for tea. <laughs> Anyway, we will wrap things up there other than to thank our wonderful guest for joining us and to get you to plug all the amazing things you do. So, Jason, if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you and what work and projects of yours should they be checking out? Sure. Uh, You can find me at www.jasonrlady.com. Dot com. Very important to have my middle initial R in there. Jason Lady will not get you there. <laughs> but Jason, believe it or not, that was actually already taken when I went to get a website. Darn it. So I had to throw my middle initial in there. But uh, you can go to my website to learn more about me and learn more about my books. Uh, they were mentioned at the uh, top of the podcast, but uh, my books are Monster Problems and Super Problems. They are written for middle grade readers. And as we mentioned, the middle grade at heart <laughs> among us uh, would also enjoy them. They're fun, humorous, fantasy adventure books. Uh, they're in 
a series called the Magic Pen Series. So if you know any kids that age, anybody out there who's listening uh, knows any kids that are kind of in that right middle grade uh, age range, or you yourself uh, like books like that, uh, they can be found either through my website. There's links there, but you can also find them on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, anywhere books are sold. Uh, you can uh, find them available as print or uh, electronic editions as well. Um, you can find me on Twitter under Jason Lady Author, and you can find me on uh, Instagram as Jason R Lady Author, <laughs> and uh, Facebook as Jason R Lady Author. Uh, on Twitter, I tend to mostly comment and talk about superhero stuff and science fiction stuff, uh, the occasional uh, news about me. And you can follow me on all those places to hear about when my third book, which I'll just plug right here, it comes out in August. It's called Time Problems. It's another book in the Magic Pen series. Another middle schooler gets the Magic Pen, draws things with it before they know it's magical, and uh, it causes problems for them that they then have to fix. And uh, they learn a lot about themselves along the way. So that's where you can find uh, find out more about me and my work. Excellent. Thank you so much. Such a nice tie-in with today's issue. Yeah, I uh, picked out this one specifically when you said, hey, what issues mm-hmm. would you want to do? And I think I had some backup choices, but uh, this was my <laughs> prime choice, I think, just because I knew that what I do would tie in so well mm-hmm. uh, with the themes in this book. Well, thank you so much again, Jason, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 55, The Ghost of Braddock Manor, in which Cerise kisses Kurt for five minutes. What else do you need to know? Other characters are also involved, and we'll talk about them too, with another amazing guest who knows a lot about sex and superheroes, one of our favorite topics. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel or the Claremont Run channel. We've been sharing them on all three. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another wondrous conversation thank you jason for leading us down the rabbit hole thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought music for our truly epic theme song play us out 